Did you ever wonder what Houston was like before there were freeways and skyscrapers? What did the land look like before the Allen brothers founded this city? Before there was a Buffalo Bayou? Did we have Buffalo? Today, I'm joined by CityCast contributor Jaime Gonzalez and Dan Worrell, author of A Prehistory of Houston and Southeast Texas, Landscape and Culture. We're talking about Houston before it was Houston. It's Wednesday, April 20th, 2022. I'm Lisa Gray, and this is CityCast Houston. Jaime and Dan, thanks for being here. Oh, you're very welcome. Super excited to be here, Lisa. Yeah, absolutely. For a long time, I sort of thought that Houston's history started in 1836 when (laughs) the Texas Revolution happened and the city of Houston was founded. And, you know, I dimly had sort of the six flags over Texas sense of history that there were colonial powers sweeping back and forth over the land. But that was it. And it's only in the last what, decade or so, that I've realized how much deeper this stuff goes. Jaime, I know you've been thinking about this a lot harder than I have. Why does it mean so much that we get a better sense of what was going on on this land? Yeah, I think there's a couple of uh, reasons. One is presence. So uh, Houston has about 50,000 indigenous folks, self-identified indigenous folks. There are likely to be others as well. So just knowing that uh, this community is vibrant, it's here, and it has been here in some form or fashion for uh, over 12,000 years is important. The other part is that as a conservation biologist, I need to know what this land was like and what forces shaped it. And the indigenous community were shepherding and stewarding this land through various activities for millennia. And it's what we uh, inherited when the colonists got here from the Old South and from Europe. I've been using you as a source, as a reporter for years. Pretty soon after I figured out that you had helped me answer any dumb question that I needed, I called you and I asked you once, did Houston ever have buffalo? Why do we have a buffalo bayou? Yeah, the last buffalo herd that was seen by a child in 1836. And it's kind of that 1836 was kind of a momentous time, right? Texas won its independence. The city of Houston was founded and we saw the last big buffalo herd here. So that was kind of a momentous year. And the truth is that Houston has always had this relationship with big grazers. Back in the Ice Age, we had elephants and giant predecessors to our modern buffalo and camels and horses. So this whole place was- We had camels. We had camels. (laughs) Absolutely. They actually originated (laughs) in North America and then traveled over to Asia, believe it or not. So we had this huge (laughs) Western camel here. But over the millennia, grazers really played an important part. And and so we did absolutely have buffalo. They were seasonal. They would come from the north and they would graze down here for a while and they'd head up. So very excited that Dan Worrell is here to tell the deep history of bison here in the city. And Dan, what is that? Like, as I understand it, like... The people and the bison went together, right? Oh, yeah. I think I don't think it's much of an overstatement to think that uh, coastal Texas and central Texas were really one large bison ranch. And uh, <laughs> the Indians were ranching bison on a scale that was so large that the European colonists couldn't recognize it for what it was. I think around here, let's just say they were here for at least 13,500 years, going back to that time of elephants and camels. Wow. And uh, possibly quite a bit earlier, but in the Houston area, at least, that's the oldest remains we have. So that's 
13,500 years. Of solid history. Wow. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. We, we Europeans have been around for about 180 years. So to kind of put it in perspective, <laughs> it, it's similar to a lot of places in North America. It's, it's been, uh, people have been living here as long as anywhere in North America, just about. Wow. The, the thing with Buffalo is that we have a local archaeological society, the Houston Archaeology Society, and they've been doing work for about 60 years, um, investigating sites, writing reports on them. If you take all of those sites, there's about 780 of them, and put them on a map, which is what I've been doing, you start to see patterns and you realize what was going on, that uh, these sites are outlining basically two ways of living along the coast. During the warm months, they would be eating shellfish and fish and, and crabs and turtles and alligators. So down along Galveston Bay. Yeah, absolutely. And, and the river estuaries. Yeah. And then in the fall, though, they would come up, as, as Jaime mentioned, into the prairies, which for us is the uh, Katy Prairie, which all of Houston basically is Katy Prairie. It's cement now, but, <laughs> but uh, it was all part of the same thing. Yeah. Picture what was happening. Realize that in the winter months, um, starting up in North Texas, you start to freeze the vegetation. So the grass freezes and it's not as good to eat anymore. So the buffalo would start to move toward the coast, eventually ending up along the coast eating salt grass, and hopefully there won't be a freeze. So to get there, they had to come along a corridor that could be defined as the Piney Woods uh, to our east and north mm -hmm. and the Brazos River. In between there was the Katy Prairie. Okay. And then there was another prairie called the San Bernard between the Brazos and the Colorado. This was just a buffalo migration. The buffalo were basically herding themselves. Yeah, these would be... Toward these people le living on the coast. They were looking for grass. They were looking for greener grass. And yeah. um, as they came into these corridors, it's pretty tightly defined. Now, take a look at the back of your hand. Hold it in front of you and extend all your fingers outward. And pretend that's Buffalo Bayou, which as you go up to the northwest, ends in all these little fingers, uh, which are forested creeks. And then it just ends in the prairie. Okay, so my fingers are these creeks that then flow down into my palm. My palm would be Buffalo Bayou. And then everything flows out into my arm, which is Galveston Bay. Correct. Okay. Same thing with White Oak Bayou. Okay. Well, at any rate, you've got your hand in between the, the Piney Woods and the Brazos River. For the buffalo to come down, remember, they don't like to be in trees. They like to be <laughs> in the open. If the Native Americans could get behind them, maybe start a fire, uh, they could drive them, ultimately driving them into the spaces in between your fingers. And uh, that makes each one of those spaces makes a funnel. And at the head of the funnel down there, once you've got them on a run, they have to jump into the bayou. Now, at that time, those bayous were anywhere from about 8 feet to 30 or 40 feet deep. Wow. So there's a cliff. And it's not enough. It's not like the big ones you read about out west where there's hundreds of feet of fall. But there was enough to slow them down. Now, remember, for most of those 13,000 years, the hunters had atlatls or throwing sticks. They were throwing small spears, or they called darts. And uh, they had to get relatively close, and they had to slow these animals down. So the whole point of, the, of driving them into these creeks was to slow them down enough so they could kill them and then harvest them in numbers. And uh, so if you look archaeologically, where did they used to find all these sites? just where you'd expect them, at the heads of those funnels. Yeah. The interesting thing is that they came back to those funnels 
time and time and time again over 13,000 years, telling you that geographically, this was a slaughterhouse. This is where they had their killing fields. And it's, it's utterly remarkable. It's, it's, it's not the image that we have of them wandering around. Um, they, they knew exactly where to go. And not only, so some of these were the local Akokisa of the Atakapa tribe that lived in the San Jacinto River Basin and their ancestors, but also the Karankwa who lived further down the coast and their ancestors. And then coming from central Texas were uh, central Texas hunters, which by historical times were the Tonkawa. Um, all of these um, hunted in these same areas and often got into conflict with each other. So everybody converged. They weren't, not cooperatively. No. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> not cooperatively. At any one time, there's only a few thousand Nakokisa, only a few thousand Karankawa, only a few thousand uh, Tonkawa. So at any one time, there's a lot of prairie to cover. They might not even see each other one season. Uh, so one season, maybe that, that place at the headwater of the Buffalo Bayou was uh, hunted by the Akokisa. Another time it was by the Tonkawa, whatever, uh, and their ancestors. Now, where those, where your fingers are that you're holding up, that where the Buffalo mm-hmm. Bayou does that, is the, is the reservoirs today. The Barker and uh, Attucks Reservoirs is where the sites are. All those archaeological sites I'm talking about were destroyed when um, the dams were built and the the bayou oh. was rechanneled and whatever, but that's okay. They had been studied, yeah, and uh, so we know know what was there. But that's where it happened. Wow, you talk about it being a giant ranch. What were the people here doing as ranchers? Were they managing the herds? Were they managing the land? Well, the the French, you know, La Salle was down the coast in 1688. Mm-hmm. One of his lieutenants, a fellow by the name of Jotel, uh, wrote some great detailed accounts of, of the uh, uh, Indian hunting methods. And sometimes they, they use the fire to drive them in a certain direction, uh, also with deer, by the way. So if the wind was blowing in the direction that they wanted the buffalo to run, then the fire would spread in that direction and sort of chase the buffalo. Correct. And of course, in the fall of the year, we have those northers coming right. down, right, from the, from the north and northwest. Wow. Well, that's perfect. Because that's that smoke and everything and fire drives them yeah. down to the southwest into your fingers in Buffalo Bayou. Uh, so it, it all worked great. But the other reason they had the fire was uh, they knew that if they burned off an area, then you'd get all these tender shoots growing back up. And that would actually attract the bison to an area. So there were two things going on. Oh, okay. So it kills off the trees True. that would grow here. So we don't have a forest. And you get all this tender grass. All, all the above. And you got a big buffalo farm. Uh-huh. Yeah. In, in around the Houston area, the Katy, we, we think of the Katy Prairie as a permanent thing, but without the fire, it would have been all trees. And to prove that, all you have to do is wander around uh, the Barker and, and Attucks Reservoirs, the little trail through there. It's all forested now, but when they acquired that land in the 40s, it was all prairie. And as soon as they acquired it and quit mowing it and quit grazing on it, it turned into forest. It's a very wow. humid climate we have. So forest is probably the natural setting, but at least for 14,000 years, uh, um, the, the Indians made sure that it was prairie. Yeah, I think that's an excellent point. I think that most of the ecosystems in North America were heavily managed by people, including the coastal prairie. And Dan is absolutely right. Without the introduction of fire, without these grazers that would be a- attracted by this land management, this area would have been forested and, like you said, 
if you go to any place where we're not managing the prairie, it turns into forest very quickly. And so there's this, this strand of history, though, that I think people should know because of the land management practices of the indigenous folks burning continuously for thousands of years, encouraging grazers to come in and move nutrients around this ecosystem. When we got here as Americans and Europeans and African descended people, the richness of that soil, which we capitalized into a lot of uh, money, banking infrastructure, transportation infrastructure, it was all predicated on the richness of the soil that came from the management of the land. So another reason we need to know this indigenous history is to figure out what gave us those agrarian roots in Houston in the first place. And I would contend that a big part of that was the land management that indigenous peoples did over millennia. Yeah. And Jaime, you work a lot with conservation. What does this kind of history tell you about how we should be managing land now? Yeah, well, I think that one thing that's really amazing is there's growing research on how indigenous folks around the world are managing nature. On average, places that are managed by indigenous people have higher biodiversity than even lands that are managed by traditional conservation groups. And it's because they have this history, this deep rootedness, this idea of seasonality and what it means. And so I think that one of the lessons there is to think about and use wonderful sources of history like Dan's book to help us understand how do we do what is called 2IC, which is combining the best of Western science and the best of what's called traditional ecological knowledge to help guide us in what we do with the land now. So it's, it's rediscovering those indigenous roots and fusing it with Western science that is gonna give us the best chance of managing ecosystems in this time of species extinction and climate change. Did you wanna hear it all about um, Native American buffalo cooking methods? Oh my God, yes, <laughs> tell me. Okay, so you've got your buffalo, they've come across the creek, uh-huh. you've got them there, they're dead, and uh, you um, take the hide off and you take the meat off, and uh, it's time for dinner. And, and we have a huge pile of buffalo carcasses, right? They're not just killing one buffalo, which would still be an enormous amount of meat. We've got- That's right. So yeah. this is, now we're talking about about a thousand AD is when pottery came to our area. Mm-hmm. Before that, they had no ceramics. So you want to have some beef stew, right? What we find, archaeologists have found in all these kill sites, almost all of them, are uh, piles of, of fired clay balls about the size of your fist. Huh. So they look like red bricks, except they're just red lumps. And there will be like a Uh, an area the size of a wheelbarrow indentation in the ground filled with these things. Archaeologists finally figured out, mainly by looking at modern-day Assiniboine Indians up in the north, uh, in in the northern part of the U.S., um, what they would do would be skin the buffalo, and they have this fresh skin, they'd dig a hole about the size of a wheelbarrow and line it with the skin. Then meanwhile, they'd have a fire off to the side and they'd take, if they had rocks, they'd use rocks, but we only have mud here in Houston, right? Right, so we have to make our own rocks. You have to make your own rocks. <laughs> you take these mud balls and you uh-huh. put, them in the, uh, put them in the fire till they're fired, till they're white hot. And then you've got your skin in this, uh, in this um, wheelbarrow-sized opening, and you put whatever liquids, maybe it's, it's, it's blood and entrails and stuff that you want to cook, or brain, or wh- whatever it is. Um, the delicacies that they had to eat first. 
and the hot rocks then would be added to that till it boils it. So that's a, that was a, a, a almost ubiquitous way of, of cooking uh, that was used here. And so all the ooey gooey stuff you'd cook first as the big celebration feast. Apparently yeah. so. And and um, so the next time you're, you can't find your cooking pots, you know what to do. <laughs> and this sounds like a, the, the freshest restaurant concept in Houston. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God, I love this. <laughs> Archaeologists have, have just uncovered so many things. Um, and the one thing you need to do, of course, though, is, is to put it on a map and consider the landscape that they were working in, the prairie landscape and the forest landscape, then you start to understand the whole, you know, understand it in a larger sense that these guys knew their landscape very, very well and they knew how to live on it. Thank you both so much. This is fascinating. Thank you so much. You're very welcome. Enjoyed it. That was Jaime Gonzalez and Dan Worrell. You can buy Dan's book, a Prehistory of Houston and Southeast Texas at Becker's Books and at the Museum of Fine Arts Bookstore. Also, tomorrow morning at 10.30, Dan will oversee the Harris County Historical Commission's dedication of three historic plaques by Buffalo Bayou, one of which describes the area's prehistory. We'll have more information on that in our show notes. Next up, I am here with senior producer Dina Kespa. Dina, what else is happening around Houston today? Hey, Lisa, I want to tell you about a really tender story that I read up on recently. It's about a local veteran named Robert O'Brien. He served in the Navy for two tours of duty in a decade, and then after that kind of fell on hard times and wound up homeless for 15 years. Just last year, Star of Hope was able to help Robert get off the streets and into an apartment for himself. Now, Robert has been a longtime Astros fan. And here's where it gets really sad and heartwarming at the same time. Robert found out he was diagnosed with stage four lung cancer. He really wasn't given much time to live. So he decided he wanted to spend whatever time he does have left, kind of crossing things off his bucket list, you know, going down this wish list and doing everything that he wants to do. One big wish he had on that list, on the top of that list, (laughs) was being able to go to an Astros game. Now, Robert has been a huge fan for a really long time. And thanks to the Astros, he actually got to go. And on top of that, he got a jersey from his favorite player, which was really sweet. It was awesome seeing the little video of him kind of rolling up to a game and just seeing how happy he was. That is it for our show today. Follow us on Twitter. We are at CityCast Houston. See you tomorrow. Convincing. (laughs) Sounds like a podcast.